certain times we want absolute clarity, but what God wants to give us is prudence in terms of how we live our lives. Cause that is the way his grace as the you know first cause interoperates with our free will and our lived, you know, the discipline of a life well lived to lead us into truth, right? To lead us into the good things that we ought to be doing. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am joined today by a very special guest. We decided to upgrade Dave Van Vickle to the version 2.0, and we got Father Gregory Pine. How you doing, Father Gregory? I'm doing well. Um, by comparison to Dave Van Vickle, who's to say? But by comparison to how I could be, infinitely better. That's a confusing statement, but I'm doing all right. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're doing all right. Okay. It wouldn't be uh, Thomistic if it wasn't confusing. Um, <laughs> That's so it. I was in a philosophy. Oh, go ahead. Go, go. No, no, no. I was going to say a stupid thing, but then you were going to say a funny story. So you were in a philosophy. I was in a philosophy. And uh, when you're in a philosophy, uh, no, I was in a philosophy class at Steubenville. And the professor began with the question, what is the purpose of philosophy? And I don't know if you know the Cruz family. You have to know the Cruz family. But the Cruz of my generation is Robbie Cruz, who is just... Mm. Tom Foolery and Gafal all day, all long. And um, he raised his hand and he said, to confuse your enemies. And it was at that point that I received my vocation. I was like, yes, it is for this that I've come into the world. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. A habit thou hast prepared for me. Yeah, that's beautiful. So how long have you been studying philosophy? So you are now, you're now a priest in the Dominican order. Uh, we didn't, what, what year did you graduate Franciscan? 2010. 2010. So we did not overlap at all. Mm -hmm. um, I was there with your uh, elder elder sisters. But um, what, uh, yeah, how long, so how long has it been since you've been starting your quest of studying philosophy? Mm. Um, well, we, we took a little in college because it was demanded of us or required of us. Um, and then when I got to the Dominican House of Studies, which is where all the friars from my province do their formation, then things Things accelerated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then things got worse. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, so I guess, I mean, it depends on how you count these things. It's funny, you know, like I've, I've watched a couple of clips recently of contentious people saying contentious things on college campuses. And usually you got somebody up in the front who's like, men are men and women are women. And then you have somebody who like raises a question from the back of the angry room and they're like, well, I'm a, and then they like fill in whatever mages they're studying. And then they just say something like wild off the wall, like I'm a physicist and a mathematician. And so I know that there are 74 genders. It's like, wow, fascinating. People make wild authority claims. It's like me yes. saying like, I studied underwater welding. And so I know that unicorns exist, but only in Scandinavia. It's like, uh, wait, what? Um, yeah. So when I, when I say like, philosophy, I'm somewhat embarrassed to even admit the fact that I have studied it because I feel like by comparison to those who have gone before me, I stink because philosophers are really motivated by knowing what things are. And sometimes I think that I'm not as motivated as they are because I would rather say something beautiful. And if it happens to be true, I'm like, wow, bonus, you know, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so I'd say I've, I've been looking at things philosophical for, you know, 12 years, but as to whether I've really dedicated myself philosophically to said things, that's, that's another question entirely. But mm. unicorns do prowl about in certain regions of Scandinavia based on my knowledge of underground underwater welding. So, okay. Yeah, awesome. Mm -hmm. That's good to know. So <laughs> since you're an underwater welder, it'd be perfect to have you as an expert 
on evangelization. <laughs> I think that makes exactly. sense. Bingo. And prudence. And prudence. Authority claims. You know, it's funny. Uh, we sat down with um, Alejandra and Mariah, our producers, and we were going through the stats for this podcast. And I believe your show that we had on was like Aquinas on apologetics. I can't even remember the title, but it's like our third most popular show. Wow. I know. Dang. What does that mean? Well. You must have been fooled. Yeah. It must have been like Chris Prop, Chris Pine, most recent Star Trek movie. <laughs> give me all the best things. And it's like Pine, Prude, that's close enough. And then they're like, oh, crap, this isn't about Star Trek. Yet intriguing. <laughs> I love philosophy now. I'm going to go to Dominican House of Studies. So that's what that's the typical trajectory of people. I also found out an interesting stat. If your show gets 3,995 downloads a week, you are in the top 1% of all podcasts. No way. Yeah. Holy smokes. Yeah. And if it gets 28, not 2,800, 28 downloads a week, you're oh. in the top 50. No way. Yeah. Holy that is the most smokes. bizarre. So I was like, sweet. I'm a one percenter. I'm enjoying this. This is nice. <laughs> I can't claim that in anything else in my life, but I can claim this. Uh, hold on. I have to make an entry into my calendar for later this afternoon. Okay. <clears throat> Set aside three hours to pat myself on the back. Get, get, get caught up. Okay. Yep. 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 There it is. Nice. <laughs> Scheduled. Nice. Yes. So right now you are where in the world? I'm in Freiburg, Switzerland. Freiburg, Switzerland. And the magic of the internet we are talking uh, today. I love this. I love it this. It is. It's cool. So tell me, how many local secular atheists have you converted to Catholicism since you've been there? So that is an interesting question, which I'm going to answer in a roundabout way, because that's how I answer all things. Because it's better to see, to see <laughs> the mountain peak from a variety of angles before you, you know, attain to its summit. Um, so it's fascinating. Like, I, I don't really know why I was put on this earth. I have vague notions as to why I might have been put on this earth. I feel like I'll have a better sense after I've lived more of my life. But since being assigned in Switzerland, I found it really, really fun to find small groups of believers and to encourage them. Because mm. it's like, what is it like? Well, for me, existentially, when you live in a secular country on a secular continent and you're just going about your little ecclesial life, sometimes it can be really discouraging or dispiriting because you're like, oh, here's a mass. And then you are halfway through it. You're like, oh, no, guess it's not a mess. What a blessing. Jesus, how did... Never mind. Moving on. Right? So just... After experience, after experience, after experience like that, it's just, yeah, it can just get, it can get tough. Uh, and then you find these people who are zealous and dedicated, but don't necessarily have the support uh, that they might have in other countries. Um, and you're like, whoa, let's, let's do something worthwhile. So I've had a variety of opportunities along those lines and it's cool. It's like you're hiking through the mountains and it's 34 degrees and there's three feet of snow and then it starts raining and then your phone conks out and then a helicopter comes and like drops tar on top of you and you're like why are you doing this to me um and you're like things couldn't possibly get worse and then you see like a little three-sided hut and there's a fire burning in there and then you go in and there's a little note that says this fire is for you also i made your favorite lunch and i cut off the little crusts and so you can <laughs> eat that sandwich with reckless abandon it's like it's like you just find it's like coming home when you didn't think that home existed or where you didn't think it possible for home to exist in this barren hellscape, um, with respect, of course, to the local church. And so, yeah, I think that um, I found a lot of that in Switzerland. Then I've had occasion to bop to a couple of other countries in the area just for like 40 hour visits. And um, 
I don't remember exactly what the question was. It was something about converting atheists, but I don't know how many atheists have been affected by that, but uh, certainly encouraging Catholics who feel like surrounded, besieged, beleaguered. It's awesome. It's super cool. It's, yeah, it's, it's great. There are a lot of really cool things that are happening. They are very small. They are very modest, but the Holy Spirit is moving and grooving. So cheers. I do want to point out one thing that you said uh, that I've heard across multiple podcasts of yours, interviews that you've had, John DeRosa, Frad, all that stuff. Uh, you keep mentioning going on hikes and your cell phone dying. Mm. Did, was this like a traumatic experience that really happened to you? It was, yeah. Yeah. Actually, yeah. at this point, I've told the story just enough where, you know, who cares if other people find out and they really doubt the prudence of <laughs> whatever. Keep going. Um, so I was hiking in this place and... I forgot my snowshoes. They're not mine. The community snowshoes, which is, you know, it's whatever. You typically just can't get as far or as fast, but it doesn't usually end up being traumatic. In this case, though, I was hiking on the sunny side of the mountain for the first half of the day, and I was just cruising along. And then I went up over, like, the the summit or the saddle between two summits. And then the descent, there was a ton of snow. And in the course of that descent, the water in my, you know, hydration bladder hose froze, which isn't a huge deal. You can just pull your bladder out of your bag and drink from it directly. But because it's me, I'm less likely to do so. So I'm starting to get a little dehydrated. Um, and then I have, I'm having difficulty finding the trail because I usually track the trail on an app with GPS locator. But when I lose GPS, I can't locate myself on the map. I can just see the map. And so then I have to do, you know, whatever, dead reckoning, which is usually fine. But in this particular case, I kept coming up against like a cliff face and I couldn't find my way through it. It was the kind of thing where you can't just descend this mountain. You have to know where the path is or you're going to find yourself on a really steep grade in a hairy situation. So I was tracking up and down, up and down on the face of this mountain, just trying to look for where I ought to turn. And I'm like, I'm thinking clearly enough because it's like you don't want to make a descent that you can't recover from, right? You don't want to do something precipitous and stupid, which puts you in a compromised position. So I'm just retracing my steps, looking for a turnoff, looking for a turnoff, like dusting off rocks because there's so much snow, trying to find trail markers and stuff like that. But eventually it's like, you know, it's cold. It's getting later. I'm starting to worry about daylight. I'm hearing, I don't know what they are, but it sounds like avalanches in the region. It could be jets or something like that, but the combination of factors just made me increasingly uncomfortable. And so, yeah, I got to a point where I was like, I was kind of, I was really hoping that things would turn out. And I'd been lost really badly while hiking once previously when I was 19. And um, I had a moment where I had uh, reception on my cell phone. I used that moment to call search and rescue, which was a good call. Uh, but I also thought about calling my family. I decided against it though, because one, they couldn't do anything. And two, they would just worry. Backstory, my mother passed away in September. And the thought occurred to me that in these circumstances, she can both do something and she won't worry. So at this moment, like three o'clock in the afternoon, as fog is blowing in and I find myself like exposed on this, not a cliff face, but a mountain face with, yeah, an increasingly few number of options. That's a confusing sentence. But uh, I prayed to my mom and I was like, whatever, the, the things that you say to your mom, hey, mom, things are bad. Please help me. And that moment, okay, I saw, I saw a trail marker that I hadn't seen for like the past hour and a half. I went to that trail marker and from the vantage of that trail marker, I saw a set of footprints that descended the mountain. The thing that is wild about these footprints is that the footprints originated there, right? So they didn't keep going up the mountain. There are footprints starting from that point that led off the mountain, right? And they, they put me back on the trail. 
and just like <laughs> wild stuff. Human footprints, and then they would veer off the path, and then would get picked up by what looked like animal footprints, like small woodland creature footprints, and all this crazy stuff. And meanwhile, I'm just praying, 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 with the, like the footprints don't end. And it's like, yeah, I'm using an altimeter, I'm using a compass, I'm using a map, I'm using everything I have. But effectively, these footprints led me off a mountain, and I hit the valley floor just as the lights were coming on in town. So, St. Jean of Newtown, pray for us. <laughs> that is an awesome story. Oh, man. See, this is what I would do because I remember hiking in Austria during our semester abroad and we went to the cave. Did you ever go to the cave? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've never been down a cave in my life. I'm a morbidly obese, terrified suburbanite <laughs> homeschooler who is afraid of his own shadow and thinks mosquitoes are icky. Like, I am not the guy who hikes. And the, we started it by every every one of us was ill prepared because we were told it was like a 30 minute hike and it wasn't. It was like a two hour thing, whatever. And so some of the people were ill prepared. There was a, a girl who was wearing flip flops. It was mm. uh, like a summery day. It was like in September or, you know, August or whatever. It was the beginning of our trip to Austria. And so I had to carry a uh, over these, like, I don't even know. I had to carry this girl up half this hill. And it doesn't sound like much, but when you're an inactive slob like me, you might as well have just uh, done the Iron Man. And so I get up. So I'm done. And we've just begun. And uh, <laughs> so we're going through. And then you slide down this cave. And then you get to the cave. And then there's, like, an inner part of the cave. And then that's where all the students and locals have, you know, done whatever uh, wanton debauchery. Usually they just, like... <laughs> smoke cigarettes and spray paint something. I don't know. But um, I was in the cave and I was like, this is awesome. And then we had to ascend the cave. Uh -huh. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you remember this? So I haven't been down the cave. I just know where it is. So this is all news. Yeah, no, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I have the, 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 the girl with the terrible shoes had to hold mm. on to me and I had to climb up and we're like the rocks all come out underneath your hands. You you feel like you're going to die. And that's where you have, uh, you know, you, you realize the limits of your faith and uh, and how desperate you are in those scary times, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> but we made it out alive and then we took a long break. Nice. And then uh, immediately retraced our steps and got the heck home. <laughs> and then I realized Plato's analogy of the cave Spot on, spot on, because uh, I did not want to leave that sucker. I didn't care about it. I was like just staring up being like, that's nah, going to take too much work. Who needs to know what is real? It is going to take too much work. <laughs> All right. That's enough. That's enough. <laughs> we haven't even talked about anything about the show. So let's talk about prudence. I want to talk let's about prudence it. because I don't just want to have this be the, the last five seconds of the podcast like I did here on Catching Foxes. But what is prudence? Besides Alistair McIntyre's practical wisdom, how would you tell people uh, average hoi polloi, right? Yeah. What is prudence? My go-to recently has been a lot of people feel like life is happening to them. Mm -hmm. Prudence is the virtue that empowers you to be the protagonist of your life. Mm. I usually start there. And then if the people have like Pelagian sensitivities, I'm like, no, 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 don't worry. It's by God's grace, right? <laughs> so he's the first mover. And you're the second mover, right? Or you're his instrument, you're his agent. But God has placed your life in your hands. It's for this reason that he gave you liberty. He's delighted to see what you make of it. Um, and you have all the resources ready at hand to, uh, yeah, to be about it. And prudence is what brings those resources together and coordinates them and then deploys them for the pursuit of good goals and a happy life. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. 
Yeah. So Plato described prudence as the charioteer of the virtues. I was listening to this one um, woman who was talking about the power of emotions and how um, the Greeks underplayed them. And she said, mm. instead of the charioteer of the virtues and, and of the passions and all this stuff, she said, prudence is more like um, strapping a tiny steering wheel on the back of like a rocket ship to really describe <laughs> our emotional lives. Um, what, so how does, why is prudence considered to be this, you know, unique of the moral virtues? Why is it so dang special? And um, yeah, we'll just kind of go from there. Yeah. So... Most of the virtues that we talk about are virtues of our appetites, like temperance, fortitude, justice. They inform the way that we desire. And those virtues, they're basically like, what would you say? They're just raw energy, all right? And they incline us or they conduct us or they tend us towards certain goods, whether that be food or drink or sexual intercourse or family life or living in society or the knowledge of the truth about God. We have all of these like different inclinations for different goods, which correspond to us as human beings, because we're made on the way, we're not yet made at the end. And so in order to attain to the end, we have to be in fruitful dialogue with all of these different goods, which represent for us certain perfections. And so the appetites provide that moral energy. They, yeah. they just, mm, they got a lot going on. But left to themselves, they can be chaotic, right? They can lack a certain order. <clears throat> they can be a little bit blind because they're not necessarily reflective about how they engage with these goods, yeah. whereas prudence is. So you've got these spiritual, well, you've got these spirited horses, I should say, uh, hitched up to a chariot. And prudence is like the charioteer insofar as he coordinates their movements. And then he, he directs those appetites to a fully sublimely human end. Because, you know, like if it's up to the horse, the horse is just like, I'm going to run around and it's going to be awesome. And the charioteer is like, what if we won a race and gained great glories? All right. Like Secretariat, for instance, whatever, he won the Triple Crown, I think, in like 1974. Or Man of War also won the Triple Crown in the 1970s. Had they not won on the grand stage, you wouldn't know anything about the power of these horses. There might be like legends of Secretariat and Man of War on the Kentucky Plains, but they wouldn't have attained to the same glory as they have attained to insofar as they were trained by men and ridden by men and, you know, like applauded by men. And so prudence is like that. It, it brings the, the movements, the inclinations of these lower virtues into the full glory, resplendence, grandeur of human achievement and human culture, because they're able to, you know, prudence is able to see what is, and as a result of which, shape a life. Oh, what a boring answer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think a lot of people miss this because um, we've been on a kick uh, lately of trying to communicate the fact that morality and evangelization are not so distinct. Mm -hmm. um, we've separated them out because of those horrible, horrible people, the scholastics, who took theology yeah. out of the monastery Gosh. and put it in the university. Ugh. These freaking guys. I know, I know. I've been uh, reading a little von Balthasar lately, and you know his, <laughs> his, his harmony of you know, the medieval synthesis and Thomas Aquinas brings truth, beauty, and goodness together. And then it immediately falls apart basically after him in terms of that <laughs> comprehensive synthesis. And he's like, but just think about it. The theologians of the past, before scholasticism, it's a reason more or less why it's called scholasticism, is because it was done in the monasteries. It was done by men who were praying the entire book of the Psalms every day and all that stuff. And uh, it was the fruit of contemplation. Whereas, uh, <laughs> as, a, as the art of manliness put it one day when I was listening to uh, an interview, he said, 
Um, who wants to learn about Aristotelian virtues from a morbidly obese, chain-smoking college professor who obviously isn't virtuous? And I was like, well, on top of the fact that you described me to a T. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's the funny thing that we can talk about things without living them, but yeah. living the virtues. This, so th part of this is seeing the connection between holiness, between the evangelizing mission of the church to bring people into the light of the gospel and things like morality. Morality is so divorced from the charisma and all this stuff. Part of my goal is to bring this stuff back. Because when I started studying morality at Franciscan, like I fell in love with virtue ethics and St. Thomas Aquinas and all of this stuff. And then when I get out into the church, I find that there is probably the number one problem. Number one problem in our church is we have zero liturgical formation. Uh, we have sacramental formation, varying levels. We have biblical formation of varying levels, but we have terrible, terrible liturgical, almost zero actual formation in what the liturgy is and how to how to pray it, how to worship. Um, but then the other thing is morality. Like there are actually very few morality classes. And I'm super thankful that uh, Ascension Press is coming out with um, Dr. Matthew, uh, my nerd. Uh, he has a great book that they just came out with um, that I'm going to use as a textbook in my class in the in the fall. But like it's in a podcast like this, that's trying to help Catholics be trained in evangelization. The big problem is morality seems like a totally different thing. No, I'm just trying to yeah. get people saved. Saved from what? Save from sin, save from the hells that we create, save from eternal separation from God. Those absolutely apply. If we think of morality as the way of the Lord Jesus, it's not so distinct from spiritual theology and prayer. It's not so distinct from liturgy. It's not so distinct from preaching the kerygma. But when we like kind of break it down to these little nuggets of self-contained, isolated zones, we fail to see their overlap, which is why it's important to have you on the show to talk about the relationship to prudence to evangelization. So let's just start there. How does prudence, number one, help us mm. actually in evangelizing? Yeah. So I have a like, small introductory thought, uh, which may branch in a variety of directions based on whimsy, caprice. Um, so <laughs> I love the way you introduce your answers. <laughs> <laughs> you use the words that most people don't use unless they're playing Scrabble. It is beautiful. <laughs> Um, so one of these go-to lines with which St. Thomas Aquinas describes the Dominican life is he says it's for, basically it's for the apostolic religious to contemplate and to give to others contemplata. So like contemplated things or like God contemplated effectively. Mm. You sometimes hear it rendered as the fruits of your contemplation, but I don't like that translation for a variety of reasons, which don't need to be repeated. Um, but I think that all of us as Christians are called to a contemplative life. This is a big von Balthasar point about the Marian yeah. identity of the church, right? That the church... The church has a kind of quality or character of being actively receptive to the Lord and his mysteries and that we are shaped uh, and that we kind of come into our identity in the context of that, that conversation, that interaction. Um, so, you know, a Christian's vocation, as it were, is to be a contemplative and to be a contemplative will take a variety of shapes depending on your state in life, the century in which you live, where you're born, who your parents are, et cetera. Okay. But the basic point is that we're called to be contemplatives. And in this life, in this contemplative life, our humanity is transformed. I mean, we could even say it's transfigured because we become monstrances or icons of the divinizing Godhead who wants to be in such sublime and intimate communion with human persons as to make us like him in a way that really does defy comprehension, right? The scriptural language that 
we often hear trotted out is is it's terrible, right? It's so it's so crazy that it makes us slightly uncomfortable. Like you are gods and all of you sons of the most high. We are called to be partakers, sharers in the divine nature. It's like, woof, what does that even mean? <clears throat> and I think that from this vantage, right, the life of prayer, the life of study are two wings whereby we mount to the contemplation of God because we want to be in touch with God. We want to be in touch with his revelation, with his grace, such that we can turn back you know, to our contemporaries without losing sight of God, without giving up this Godward gaze. We can turn back to our contemporaries and say, I have met someone, right? And he is terrible and good, right? And, and as a result of which I cannot look away, I cannot eat from another trough. I can have no truck with anything less than this, right? Because my mind is broken open to it. My heart is wounded for it. And I will not rest until such time as I have had my fill. And I suspect very much that I will not have had my fill until I abide with him forever in heaven. And I want you there because there's something about this relationship which like it, it, it spills over the bounds of my heart and into the hearts of others. And I want, I want you with me there in a way that I can't fully comprehend or even explain because it's not like I'm making of you my charity case because I don't pity you. I just can't imagine a life without this and I want you to be part of it, right? So like to be a contemplative is to be transfigured and transformed. And that means, you know, like to be called to a wide variety of human excellences, which are all kind of integrated or brought together in this in this life, right? And so when we when we pose an invitation to another person, we don't just do so as teachers, you know, Paul the Six, Evangelia Nuziandi. We do so as witnesses, those who have suffered divine things, right? Those who have been in living communion and living contact with divine things. And that means that our whole life is transformed. Like you said, liturgically, morally, spiritually, these are false divisions and we should push back against them because effectively what we're meeting in is a life and that life is, you know, it's in an integral life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the great phrase from the book of Romans is the newness of life. The newness yeah. of life. Novitas Vitae, baby. Yeah. And I love that phrase because it's meant to show like how real St. Paul takes the new creation motif. Like you are no longer in Adam. I think Scott Hahn's covenant theology has gone for for many lay people has been the thing to help us see this. Like we were in Adam. He was our covenant representative and all the other, you know, covenant leaders were still in Adam. So then the son of God became a son of Adam and now we're in Christ and we've become a new creation. This radical newness of life is the very thing that, that we are meant to live for, but also live from. And the living from that is the place of witness, right? People need to see that our lives have been changed if we're walking around being like, hey, Jesus Christ has a, you know, God has a plan for your life and all this stuff. And I think a lot of that gets lost. Um, but let me ask you, how, how does one become a contemplative? I think, uh, like, practically speaking, it means being willing to be bored, right? Being willing <laughs> to be fatigued in the presence of the Lord, being willing to redirect your mind back from distraction and not despair of the possibility of having a contemplative life, even if it seems like a million miles off, right? So centering prayer using an app. Now we're talking. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. So there are seven chakras. Um, no. Um, I think I think for a lot of us, it will mean, uh, you know, like praying first thing in the morning. And it'll often mean praying tired. Right. We we tell ourselves all kinds of stories about the types of things that we need and what our limits are and, you know, who we are and how we've come to be such. But at the end of the day, if you're Christian, I think that you're called to pray for a little bit of time by yourself in the morning. And I'm just more and more convinced of that with each passing day. 100%. And that's going to mean certain changes to our life. 
with the way in which we interact with our phone, with the way in which we interact with our computer, with the way in which we interact with our place of work, you know, what that means for our family life, you know, like mom and dad are going to have to take shifts and that's, yeah, that's going to, that's going to be something that you have to suss out. Yeah. Um, so I think that it's just not, not to say like to localize it in a 20 minute period of prayer during the morning, but I think that when you consecrate the day, you're more on the lookout, you're more vigilant for opportunities in which you can kind of return to that relationship, right. By a process of recollection, small aspirational prayers, little moments in which you pause before you open your laptop, little moments in which you don't reach for your phone while stopped at a traffic light, things like that. Just simple ways in which we can we can reintroduce a contemplative culture into our lives, which have been increasingly encroached upon by like clamorous modernity. It's like, yeah. give me your attention. It's like, shut up. Well, we live in an attention economy, right? And to think um, we had Dr. Josh um, from the uh, Springtime Institute um, on the podcast last week and he was talking about youth culture and stuff. He had this great line where he said, you know, the army of PhDs that are out there whose whole job is to keep kids attention to phones. Mm-hmm. It's like, you're powerless. You're powerless. Yeah. And the attention economy, there's a wonderful book by a guy named Matthew Crawford called the world beyond your head. Have you ever read that book? No, it is worth everyone's time. I think, um, okay. he's a guy that did, uh, the first book was called shop class as soul craft. Um, which is awesome. But, uh, in the world beyond your head, he talks about how, you know, he's at the airport and in the bottom of the trays of the U, uh, or the, uh, TSA, you know, luggage trays where they scan your stuff, there's advertisements, right? And, uh, there's advertisements now on the, on some kiosks when you're getting your tickets, your boarding pass printed out and there's ads, um, you know, everywhere. And he said on his hotel credit card key, there's an ad for the local pizza place. And he's like, these people have dreamed of every way to own your attention. And you think about that, um, you know, not to be all von Balthasarian, but um, he was quoting a cultural critic in Germany in the 80s. And they said, and basically said, it is almost impossible to pass on a culture when people are watching, get this, five hours of television a week. And von Balthasar added in parentheses, or a faith. And I said, five hours a week in America, I think in the eighties, it was five hours a day. Kids were watching TV. And then you look at it and you see the, the truth of, uh, was it Archbishop Gomez? All of, uh, all the world trembles before the onslaught of American pop culture. Like, Mm -hmm. and it's just being ramped up always on internet plus phones, all this stuff. So in order to be contemplative, you have to, you would say, number one, love Jesus. Mm -hmm. Probably up there. Number two, intentionally carve out time in your morning or before your day begins to set aside time for mental prayer. Number three, mm-hmm. you can't do that and have fruitful mental prayer if you are in hyper indulging every other time. So you need to be intentional about the rest of your day. Um, yeah, to me, it, it makes sense. Like you can't have good morning prayer if you don't go to bed on time the night before, right? Father Mike yeah. Schmitz had this amazing Ascension presents video, uh, ascensionpress.com. Um, and they, he, he said this great thing. He said, why do you go to bed late? And he was talking to a brother priest. And he said, because the moment I go to sleep, I know that my time is over. And when I wake up in the morning, it's going to be owned by a million other people. So this guy was going to bed at like one o'clock every morning and just mm-hmm. a waste throughout the rest of the day. But that's exactly how I felt. I would stay up late because, well, now the kid's in bed and now the wife's in bed. And now I can have me time. But me time ruined me for the first four hours the next day. So prudence has to help order 
more than just it's more than just okay well i said a rosary at 8 30. it's about okay well look at all these 500 little things in my life that i have to start putting in order in order to have a good prayer life yeah yeah i think it's like like you said love jesus that's principle number one and what happens is i like to say because it's provocative but because it's true is that jesus ruins your life you yeah. know jesus he just gets in there and he ruins it because you have all of these uh, you know, stable compromises or settled positions. Uh, but you've lost touch with the fact with that, like some of them are based on a lie yeah, or some of them are based on a, on a half truth and the Lord will settle for nothing less than the whole, you know, the whole truth. And so you're going to be like, yeah, yeah. You know, like I know that phones are, you know, semi-addictive. So I just try to like keep it to the end of the day. And then I like check up on libertyballers.com and bleeding green nation and all the other like local outlets for Philly sports, because I want to be abreast of the NFL draft and yeah. Joel Embiid's fractal, you know, orbital bone and stuff like that. Um, because it's like, I feel like I need that, or I feel like that's, that's an essential feature of my life, depending on how one defines essential. But then, you know, like I, I am cognizant of the fact that prayer suffers the next morning on account of the fact that I'm fatigued. And then the question is, what do you love? Like, what do you really love, Gregory? And prudence helps you to make those, those uh, adjustments or to make those kinds of evaluations which, which precede the adjustments. Because it doesn't mean that you have to spend your entire day in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament because prudence doesn't, op like, it doesn't operate by a, by a totalizing, maximizing, optimizing logic. It's like, do the best thing at all times, you know, because human life is far more textured and nuanced than that. But it does say like, all right, is there falsity that has crept in? All right, how are we going to confront that falsity? And based on this first principle, the love of the Lord Jesus, you have a center around which all other goods congregate and in light of which all other goods assume their proper place. Yeah, the, the other day I was talking with a guy and it was immediately the fruit of our Catching Foxes episode. Because this guy was sitting here and he has a, a, a handful of debilitating diseases, mental illness stuff that all kind of conspired to um, rob him of his identity, right? Self-made man, beautiful wife, family, all this stuff, like guys rocking it. And then he gets hit and hit and hit and hit by all these things. And he's sitting in my office and he's like, you know, I'm trying to ask myself, like, what is God doing in all this? What is like, is he trying, what is he trying to teach me? And I was like, well. Okay, like, I don't think you necessarily have to think I suffer this malady. Therefore, God is trying to teach me be more patient with your kids. And I, this happened. Therefore, I said, God can use all of them, the horribleness and the goodness of your life in order to bring you ever closer to him. He can work all things for the good for those who love him. I said, but number one, and so his big thing was I'm not doing and I need to know like where God wants me and all of this and all this stuff. And I just said, you know, basically he was thinking his every decision, he was second guessing his every decision to try to be healthy was not right. And maybe God doesn't want me really doing this. And I was like, everyone in your life said, yes, do this. I was like, you're not going to get perfect clarity. You're not going to get infallibly certain perfect clarity on every single decision you ever make. So you just have to say, was this smart? Was this good? Pros and cons, that's part of it. But also like trusting the people who love you the most and who are concerned about you the most. Did they also agree with this decision? And he's like, yeah. And I go, okay, just be happy with that. Like let all the clamoring, um, the clamoring falsities that want to rob you of your joy, like put that aside. And you know, like you might not be able 
to trust your own judgment right now because of a lot of things going on, right? Mm-hmm. I said, but you can trust the judgment of your wife. You can, you can, you guys are so close and so you have a beautiful marriage. Like you can trust their judgment. You can trust the judgment of your parents and of the other people in your life who are saying this. And it's like, I, I feel certain times uh, we want absolute clarity, but what God wants to give us is prudence in terms of how we live our lives. Cause that is the way his grace as the you know first cause interoperates with our free will and our lived you know the discipline of a life well lived to lead us into truth right to lead us into the good things that we ought to be doing um yeah i don't know yeah no i think a lot of people they want kind of mathematical certainty about every decision before they take it but um yeah like you said pr- prudence affords a different kind of certainty <clears throat> it's like a certainty of tendency it's the certainty of one who says, all right, I think this is virtuous. It accords with virtue. It's the type of thing which, you know, which fits within my Christian life. And I, and I hope, you know, on the other side of this decision to be, you know, more temperate, more courageous, you know, more just. Like it's the type of thing which, which, can, which can grow me in virtue. Because if we get caught up in, in a, a kind of game of comparison among different consequences, and then we try to manipulate or engineer reality so as to produce those consequences, then like things just get weird, you know, things kind of get inhumane. And I think that we have to leave space for a modicum of uncertainty, for the changes which will inevitably arise in the context of a life with, you know, like a wife and kids and a parish situation and like a job situation, all of which are in flux, you know, like there could be an economic downturn or there could be a global pandemic or that, you know, we just can't know, right? Yeah. So we so we plan, we use the resources that God has given us, but we don't try to strangle all of the drama out of life for fear of what it might entail because it's all underwritten by a trust that God is provident. He's telling a story with our lives. The story is beautiful, all right? He's not like an input-output machine, like input, you know, trauma, output life lesson. That's creepy, <laughs> right? But, but God is like a father who's yeah. always present even while we are in good times, even while we are in bad times, even while we're trying to make our way, you know, discerning what is and what isn't. Like God is there, right? God is there. He's the one on whom we can rely. He's the one to whom we can return. And inevitably he will grow us in virtue, provided that we seek from him that virtue. But it's, yeah, we can't make it to be an overly crass or inhumane process. I like that. Uh, You know, know, one input of suffering equals one life lesson learned. And that is a that is like a a moralism that is very common in children's movies, children's television shows that we're raised on it. That we think, okay, well, what can I learn from this? And it's like, well, what you learned was endurance, and hopefully, you learned that how to endure well. That's that's the last piece of advice that I gave that man. I was like, you're gonna suffer. I can't tell you why. I can't say you have this issue because you are imprudent, and God wants to teach you prudence. I was like, but I can tell you this, like God can use this moment if you let him to, to sharpen your life, to make it more noble. So here's my best advice. Suffer well, suffer nobly in whatever, like you're going to figure out what that means in the context of your own life, your own story, your own meta narrative. But if within that context, right, we, we need to understand that like, it's not, it's, I like that. It's not mathematically certain. It's not mathematically certain. There was that one um, debate that you had on Pints with Aquinas with an atheist a couple of years ago, I think. And uh, he was, you guys were talking about suffering and the problem of evil. And he made this comment about 
suffering without a point. And he was like, I'll give you human suffering because, and his answer was basically because you can get a lesson out of it. You can learn something about yourself or the world or whatever. He's like, but what about a deer that is burned to death in the middle of a forest? And in my head, I was like, who cares? (laughs) I mean, I obviously, I understood the point. Like there's needless suffering. How can you have an all good and just God? But to me, there's that, that moment you said, like, because we do approach it with a mathematical approach, a Cartesian, like we must bend the, everything in the world must make mathematical certainty about the world. And if it doesn't add up, then, then burn God to the ground, the idea, the reality, all the things. Yeah. No, I think like prudence will sometimes amount to a healthy agnosticism. We have a bad uh, association with agnosticism because of the people who like sit on the fence about whether or not God exists. But I don't mean with respect to God. I mean, with respect to the, the meaning of our lives, because, you know, we're living our lives and at the same time we're interpreting our lives. But as we live our lives, we get more resources for interpreting our lives because we get more data but we also, you know, we we hone the instruments of interpretation in the process provided, please God, you know, we're seeking to grow in virtue. Um, but but before, you know, you have a good sense as to what is afoot or like what the Lord is doing or what you're doing even, um, I think that we, we shouldn't be satisfied with uh, overly facile or crass answers. And I think it's just, it's entirely... I think it's healthy just to start with the, with the least common denominator. Just start with a natural explanation. Like, why did this person like get cancer? Well, it's, I mean, it's like an inordinate proliferation of cells in a particular organ of the body. It's like, why does that happen? It's like, I mean, like a, a, a mutation. I was like, why did that happen? It's like, I don't know, like radiation for some, like what, you know, people, it's just like, listen, yeah. let's just start with what we know, right? And then on the basis of that, then we can make subsequent judgments. But if you launch right into like, the Lord is testing us as a family. Like, are we going to come together in these difficult times? It's just like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I don't worship at the altar of a creepy God, okay? And I can understand what you're saying when you express Mm. that sentiment. But I also think that we we miss out on a lot of uh, the the human experience, which we are intended to experience, to intended to undergo by just leaping to a hyper-spiritualized explanation. It's like, yeah, let's just start with the fact that it's cancer and that it sucks, okay? Good. All right, we can stay there even for a little while. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to make predictions regarding like a miracle that lies in store or how she's going to beat it. Or, um, you know, like maybe after she dies, like how she's going to be ascended into heaven. We can make all those judgments, which is fine. But I think we need to make those judgments with the recognition that we're still waiting on the meaning of our lives. We're waiting for God to tell it. We're waiting for our, you know, in our own case, you know, to like to receive it. And that's fine. That's entirely appropriate because human lives are made with precisely this end in mind, right? Yeah. It's not for us to have figured it out yesterday. It's for us to hope for the meaning, you know, tomorrow and in the weeks to come. So yeah, 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 yeah. Do you think there are people who are blessed with knowing that meaning earlier on in their lives? Yeah. Yeah, like I who? So. Like who? Um, like Saints Therese, for instance. I mean, it's, I think it's easier. It's, it's helpful to start with the saints. Um, insofar as the saints... So I think that by virtue of the gift of wisdom, right, this gift of the Holy Spirit, which perfects charity, you, you find it in some people's lives with a very, very peculiar expression where it's as if their heart beats in time with the Lord's. And as a result of which they're made kind of like perfect participants in God's providence. You know, do those people get it all right? No, but you see like little moments in which the veil is pulled back. And um, they say things which kind of sound crazy at the time, but then you're like, yeah, I can see it now. You know, you were right. I was judging you at the time for being overly pious and kind of saccharine, but 
Yeah, 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 yeah. You win this round, Saint Therese, even with your late nineteenth century hyper bourgeois French prose. You know, like <laughs> you win this round. Um, so yeah. yeah, I mean, I've I've met people like this in my life. Uh, people just like had a sense for who they were, what they were about, and what the Lord was doing. There's a parishioner at the parish why I lived in in Louisville, Kentucky, who had passed away a couple of years previously, and um, yeah, simple guy, just really good man. Uh, very faithful to his wife and to his children, very faithful to his wider family, the church community. He was just always there. He just always showed up. And when he contracted cancer, you know, he beat it for a bit and then it, you know, like it went into remission and then it came back with a roaring vengeance. And you could tell like it wasn't as if he had given up, but he just had a sense like, yeah, we fought, you know, and I could feel it in my body. I'm getting beat. And uh, that's okay, you know, because having loved his own, he loved them to the end. You know, you just had a sense of his, his union with the Lord in that. Yeah. It was like, you know, there's a time to time to be born and there's a time to die. And he, he, he entrusted his family to the Blessed Mother and he knew that they were taken care of. And I can tell you beyond any shadow of a doubt that that family is in fact taken care of. So yeah, you see it sometimes. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm always nervous because I think I have, as someone who desires to evangelize the fallen, right? Um, those who have fallen away from the church more than anyone else. Like that's what I feel like the Lord's put on my heart and to segue into those types of conversations that, you know, people feel you got to get over that hurdle of been there, done that. Oh, yeah. Christianity, church. I did all that stuff. Um, one of the things that I am ultra sensitive to is hyper pietistic spiritualizing of everything. And I have this nervousness in me that like my gut reaction is like, oh, my gosh, knock it off. You you make us look like such idiots to the, the people who have abandoned the faith. You know, knock it, quit saying you see angels in the water, hard water stains on your front windshield. Like, stop it. Like, you know, it's stuff like that that irritates me. But at the same time, I then get a little nervous being like, but am I being dominated by the, is my brain being mapped out by the secular world and I'm becoming too naturalistic? Like, like I remember one time I was having a conversation with uh, a dear person in my life who will remain nameless. And she said, you know, sometimes when I look quickly, I think I see angels. And I was like, or it's just your eyes processing light from you spinning around in your room. And they got so enraged. But I like to me in my bones, I had to argue that and wrestle it to the ground where, you know, like, how do, how do I how does one balance a hyper uh, spiritualistic thing with the fear of, you know, maybe I'm I, I don't have eyes to see, you know? Yeah, no, that's that's a question I ask myself too. Because Dominicans, those who work within the Thomistic tradition, are often accused of being rationalistic mm. and not and relying boring. as they should. So boring. <laughs> Gosh. Hello, not, Father not Thomas really. Joseph White. Gosh, get to the end already. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Point taken. Touche. Um, yeah, just being being rationalistic, which is to say, like not relying sufficiently on grace and revelation, or revelation and grace. And I think that sometimes, right, there's there's merit insofar as, you know, you think about the Pauline preaching. What does he preach? He preached, I mean, he preaches Christ and him crucified. Yeah. It depends on how you interpret his preaching uh, at the Areopagus and whether he comes away disappointed because, you know, the way that Fulton Sheen reads that passage, he sees Paul going up to the Areopagus and using a lot of natural theology to appeal to these people who are involved in a kind of cult, right, in the, in the kind of worship sense of cult, but haven't yet come into the full appreciation of the one true God, specifically of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And uh, he just doesn't have much success. Mm. You know, he gets Dionysius, as it were, and there are a couple other people who inquire. But the natural theology route doesn't necessarily prove the most evangelically potent. And I think that there's something to be said there for Paul's subjective dispositions and then the objective thing that's being proposed, right? Like subjectively, is he relying upon the Lord to show up? That's a question that that Fulton Sheen poses. And he says, I think that, that Paul might be relying too much on his own reason in this case. And then in terms of objectively, he's thinking about the particular audience that he's addressing and he's trying to enculturate, he's trying to accommodate, he's trying to figure out a best way in which to get the message across. And did he do it or should he have relied more upon the kind of stark reality or the stark novelty of the gospel? Those are all good questions to entertain for another time. I think in our case, things are a little bit different on account of the fact that the world has heard Christ preach and it has grown weary of the proclamation. So it's like this classic G.K. Chesterton line. It's not, it's not that he's you know, been tried and found wanting. It's that he's been kind of found difficult and left untried. But still, the experience of the difficulty has left the modern world kind of weary of Christian claims. And so I think yeah. that within the context of the church's life, there are a variety of traditions for precisely this reason, because we can appeal to people in different ways. right? So like, you think about the internet uh, and the way in which preaching is conducted on the internet. There are a variety of styles. And I think that we can affirm without being patronizing and say that like those styles are good whilst being different. There is a place for legitimate diversity in the life of the church. So like Father Mike Schmitz has his way of preaching the gospel and you have your way of preaching the gospel. And sister, you know, like Miriam James Hyland has her way of preaching the gospel, each of which reach people in a different way. You know, like sister Miriam James is going to meet them in their wounds. Father Mike is going to meet them in their kind of like millennial or submillennial hippitude. That's not to say that he's like, seek, like seeking to be very relevant, but he's very in touch with the concerns of college students. And you're like better disposed to find people who are work within, like working within a parish context or people who are trying to evangelize the unevangelized. And, you know, like everyone has their gifts and they're going to bring them to bear. Mm. I think that like, I'm not saying don't worry about it, but insofar as we each occupy our tradition, we need to be confident in that tradition lowercase t, within the church's great tradition, uppercase t, while still relying on the power of the cross and the resurrection, and in no way diminishing it or relying upon our own resources as if they somehow, what, made up for certain deficiencies in the gospel message. I think we should see them as instruments through which that gospel message is made closer or more proximate to those whom we seek to address with, you know, the the kind of subjective realization that it's wholly and entirely upon Christ and we rely so I, I'm with you 100% and that when people say kind of crazy pious things, I'm like, bruv, you got to stop that, you know? And St. Thomas will say, when we make bad arguments, right, it exposes the faith to ridicule because atheists say they believe for these reasons. So at Christmas, that doesn't merit the time of day for me to inquire further. I can pass on to a yet more wild, debaucherous cult. Let's go Mithras, you know? Um, <laughs> so no, I think, I, I'm, yeah, I think it's, it's what it is. All right, fair enough. We're going to take a quick break here uh, so you can hear a fine message from Ascension Press at ascensionpress.com. Check out all their awesome stuff, uh, such as Dr. Um, Matthew's new book on morality. It's awesome. A lot of great stuff going on. We'll be right back. Are you ready to know St. Joseph in a personal way? Father Mark Toops, adjunct faculty member for the Institute for Priestly Formation, and presenter of Rejoice and Oremus brings you In St. Joseph's Footsteps, 30 Days of Meditations. It may be daunting or challenging to get to know St. Joseph, but through In St. Joseph's Footsteps, you will not only get to know St. Joseph, but the Holy Family as well. 
Walk with St. Joseph through 30 days of meditations using St. Ignatius of Loyola's imaginative prayer. From the betrothal of St. Joseph to Mary, to the presentation, and more, you will walk through major moments in St. Joseph's life. To learn more about In St. Joseph's Footsteps, 30 Days of Meditations, go to ascensionpress.com forward slash Joseph. And we are back. <laughs> it is so good to be back here. I got one last question for you. Dig. Okay. Okay. You ready for this? I'm ready. Why did Jesus have to die? What? Why did he have to die? Why? Why did he have to die? Oh, yes. I love this. <laughs> um, so I just finished a chapter of my dissertation and there's a significant section of that chapter which is dedicated to this point so make sure that your pocket protectors are well secured and your glasses are firmly pushed up on the bridge of your nose because things are about to get Done. dirty and wild noise <laughs> um well like saint thomas starts with the reality of satisfaction all right sadis fatere to be made enough and I'll talk about how the fact that when we sin, you know, when human sin is perpetuated against the divine good, right, we introduce a kind of disorder into the cosmos. Things get wonkified, all right? And, and God could rectify that in any way he sees fit, all right? He could snap his fingers, right? He could bat his allegorical eyelashes. He could do whatever he wants, all right? He could twitch his nose. Um, but God, in his infinite wisdom and in his infinite mercy, chose a means whereby to communicate to us, you know, like the, the divine life in a way that would be most easily received by us, in a way that would be most efficaciously profited, you know, like that's not the way that I want to express that. Basically, he wanted to do it in a way which most conduces to our salvation, all right? And how is it that we are saved? We're saved by believing and by loving, right? We're saved by faith. We're saved by charity. There are a lot of other virtues that are part of that mix. I'm just going to focus on those, all right? So faith right, is bolstered by this, this vision, this kind of pre-vision that we have of the life of heaven. And charity, St. Thomas says, we are most inclined to love those by whom we know ourselves to be loved, which sounds complicated, but it makes total sense. You know, you're in second grade, you have a crush on somebody, all you have to do is tell that person's friend, that person's friend tells that person, that person knows that, you know, she is liked by you, and then she starts to reciprocate the feelings. Because when you know you're loved, you are more inclined to love in return. And so on, basically, in his incarnate life, our, our Lord shows us, like he reveals to us the Godhead. He reveals to us our integral humanity. He reveals to us the path whereby we are divinized. And he does it in the way that is most manifest, that is most ostensive, that is most terrible and good, and that attracts our attention. Because he says, like in the cross, right, when all of the punishments accorded to the human race are taken to their term, to their limit, and the punishment of death, we see the extent of God's love for us, right, as it is poured out from the Lord's wounded side in water and in blood and sacramental dispensation. And by the testimony of that love, we in turn are moved to love. And it actually causes in us the love whereby we respond. So it creates in us the disposition whereby we can ascend and ultimately be called up into the reality which is told forth on the cross. So in the cross, you see the sum of all punishments. You know, you see the stakes of sin. You see how very worth it it is that we be called back into the divine abundance. And we see, you know, like the bridge, the way whereby that is accomplished and achieved. And then that story continues to be retold in our flesh as each of us, you know, as St. Paul says, fills up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. 
Not to say that there's anything deficient about his sufferings, but in the sense that we need to live in our flesh what he lived in his, albeit in a variety of different ways and a variety of different registers. So basically on the cross, we see how much God loves us. And that love is stretched to its limit by the abundance of pain, by the like profundity of suffering, right? By like the, 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 the shame of it, right? By the terror of it. And then we see, you know, like, right, wages of sin are death. I get it. But in that death or through that death becomes, or like through that death is opened uh, a kind of avenue into the divine life because it's in through that death that the virtues whereby we accede to the offer of salvation are released. So did he have to die? No. But in a certain sense, it's most fitting that he did because it facilitates our salvation in a way beyond our imagining. Fiend. Fiend. Done. <laughs> nice. Nice. I, I always, I ask this because atonement theology is like my new favorite thing to study. And um, right now there is a great conflagration of articles seeking to burn Anselm and satisfaction theory of atonement, whether you have a more traditional church father's view, Christus Victor and other things coming at it, um, or you have uh, this uh, a new progressive wokeism that hangs on Anselm all racial violence of the last thousand years. Um, I've, I've read, I have people that send these to me um, all the time now because it's become like a hobby horse. And they're like, well, you know, we need someone to make atonement for our white supremacy so that we take these uh, people and beat them up because their suffering makes me satisfied. Or so it, it, it is a very tortured logic. But there was a Catholic theologian who wrote one and she said, Jesus, no, Jesus didn't have to die. Mm -hmm. And her argument wasn't the Thomas, God could forgive all of our sin. Her argument was essentially the goodness of creation wins out in the end. Therefore, laudato si, quote, here, 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 we're done. And um, when I think about the atonement theologies that have handed, been handed down, um, some of them, I think, are, I think right now, because of biblical scholarship, we're recovering a Jewish vision of sacrifice, of atonement, of redemption that goes beyond, that incorporates satisfaction, ransom, redemption, but goes beyond them in a more temple-centered approach. And uh, the more I study this stuff, the more in awe I am of Good Friday. Mm. Um, it, it, it like, I couldn't even attend the Good Friday liturgies because I was moving this year, liturgy. And, uh, but so we just prayed the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary as a family and we did uh, stations of the cross. But um, just like every step of the way becomes this, this thing that I, I really do think like we, we turn evangelization into hacks and, you know, do this, do that, say this, say that. Um, and there's certainly a place for all of that. But in the end, it is preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified and to not contemplate the wounds, to behold him whom we have pierced, to not look upon the crucified one um, with like humble, loving, like to not see it as an act of supreme love in every step from the, the lips of Judas, right, to the eye thirst, every step of the way. I think with, without that, um, all of this becomes a silly game of numbers and recruitment and not giving people new life 
So thank you so much for spending. Uh, number one, thank you for your vocation. I have benefited more than anyone else because of my many podcasts <laughs> and my obsession with podcasts uh, from your vocation. Uh, not even your own family has benefited as much as I have from the fruit of your contemplation. Um, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. But uh, yeah, so the new book coming out, uh, Prudence, How to Be Happy, How to Life Hack Your Way to Optimal you know, juicing, yeah, hiking, and uh, what's the other thing? I can't remember. <laughs> Prudence, snuggle with Jesus and don't take steroids. I think that's the subtitle. Or it might be choose confidently, live boldly. One or the other. Oh, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Choose confidently, live boldly. Which one are you doing right now? If you if you could pick one or the other. <laughs> oh, man. Right now I'm choosing confidently because we don't have air conditioning in our house, and I am choosing to sweat less than I am tempted to sweat right now. So I'm choosing oh. confidently, yeah. Bless your heart. Bless your heart. I'm living boldly yeah. because I should have been at work two minutes ago. Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen when I walk <laughs> in the door? Who knows? Uh, okay. So uh, where can people find your book? Where can people find uh, more about you too? They can find the book at OSV, uh, our Sunday visitor. They can find it on Amazon and Kindle or paperback. And then find out more about me. I contribute to a podcast, which is called Godsplaining. And that's me and four of the Dominican Friars. We have retreats this summer, actually, so it'd be cool to meet you in person. And uh, yeah, that'd be that'd be a wonderful opportunity. So you can find about those at godsplending.org. And then I contribute to a podcast called Pints with Aquinas, but I think everybody knows that uh, that podcast at this point. So mm, never, never heard of it. Never heard of it. <laughs> never heard of it. Well, thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time. Um, I always love talking to you. I love listening to you. I just want to pull up a chair and get just like a mug of coffee and just. <laughs> That you know what I want to do? I want to have you on and I want to talk about like tentpole issues in theology that every evangelist needs. Like something like, what is grace? Yeah. What does it mean to be the elect? What is predestination? Yeah. Right? And then uh, I'll be the Jesuit uh, <laughs> and you be the Dominican. And we'll just laugh and laugh. That's it. All righty. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to this episode. Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast in, uh, of evangelization. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley. Email us at ekspeatatcentripress.com. We are, we are harvesting listener emails for a handful of episodes that we want to do with you, for you, uh, in you, and around you. God bless you all. <laughs>